Heavenly, most merciful Father, on this uh, good Friday evening, we come before you, overcome by the riches of your love. Father, we come as those who are not really witnesses, but participants in your crucifixion. We have blood on our hands, and we cry out to you for mercy. And Father, we ask this evening that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, pierce the hardness of our hearts with your love, with your mercy, with your might. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer, for we pray in the mighty and the merciful name of Jesus. Amen. This evening I want to meditate a little bit on Psalm 22. If you have that, I think it's on page 319, if I remember right in your pew Bible. If you'd like to follow along. I won't read it up front. I'm just going to uh, refer to it as we speak here. Jesus said some extraordinary things. Often the things that he says just they just don't really compute with me. They seem so just contrary to what you would expect. On one occasion, Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. What a strange thing to say. Isn't Jesus the bringer of peace? I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. What is he saying? He's saying, I came to cause trouble. I came to cause serious trouble. Isn't that just alarming? In fact, it sounds, why would he say that? It sounds almost, it sounds intolerant. I came to bring a sword. It sounds even violent. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Some time ago, I was weeping with a young woman as a young girl she had been wronged in some of the worst possible ways. And her parents knew how she had been wronged and how badly she had been wronged. And they did nothing about it. Absolutely nothing. They kept the peace. You see, there's a peace that is oppressive. There's a peace that is dark. There is a peace that is not peace. There's a peace in our world, in my life and in yours and out there, that must be broken. There's a charade that must be ended. And therefore Jesus says, I did not come to bring peace. That's scary, isn't it? I don't want anyone messing with me. Don't mess with my heart. Don't mess with my plans. Don't mess with my world. Everything's fine. It's scary. And so Jesus' life, because of that, because he did not come to bring peace but a sword, it was a life of conflict. It was a life of confrontation. In conflict, listen, all of us know this. Conflict is costly. 
in your work environments, in your marriages, in your family life, conflict just drains people. It's exhausting. And in conflict, there are casualties. Jesus entered a world marked by a false peace. Shh, everything's fine. We're good. Jesus, shut up. He entered a community of God's people marked by a false peace. And he started meddling. And here's the thing about meddling. He can get you killed. So conflict is costly. It wears you down. And eventually, sooner or later, there's a breaking point. Perhaps some of you have seen the HBO miniseries, Band of Brothers. Set in World War II, it follows E Company or Easy Company of the 101st Airborne and Army Parachuting Unit from their training in Georgia, from through the war's end in Europe. And in one episode, Easy Company, having survived the gruesome Battle of the Bulge, as it would later be called, loses some of its best men to German artillery. Well, another, another man needlessly dies when his own gun misfires and he bleeds to death. And face, faced with the sheer savageness, the, the senselessness of all of the carnage, all of the loss, Easy Company's morale sinks. And one of its most beloved and seemingly bulletproof leaders, Lieutenant Buck Compton, traumatized, just overwhelmed with sorrow at all the loss, just shuts down. His men watch as their leader is hauled away in a jeep. The title of the episode is The Breaking Point. Having lived a life of sustained conflict, Jesus, on the night before his murder, this very night, in the darkness of the Garden of Gethsemane, reaches his breaking point. He takes aside his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, and says Mark's gospel. And Jesus, says Mark, began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Like the enlisted men, think about this, like the enlisted, excuse me, I just lost my place here, I apologize for that. Like the enlisted men of Easy Company, the disciples watched as their beloved, seemingly bulletproof lieutenant, the one who had cast out demons, the one who had raised the dead, the one who had fed thousands, the one who had calmed storms, who had walked on water, reached his breaking point. And what's amazing is that Jesus didn't go off by himself, right? He takes three people, three of his closest uh, brothers, if you will, three of his closest uh, uh, men who follow him, disciples. I mean, he, he, he lets them see him at the breaking point. Isn't that risky? Isn't that dangerous? Jesus allows his men to see him with nothing left. Why does he do that? Maybe some of you is Maybe some of you remember times when your mom or dad, when you were little, and you saw your mom or dad reach that breaking point. A time of sorrow, a time of loss, a time of confusion. When you saw your dad, I can think of my mom describing her own father, a man who came back from 
World War II, was in the Army Corps of Engineers, barrel-chested man, came back from the war, went back to school, started a construction company in Washington State, built bridges all over the state. Just this, just this giant of a man. To see how he reached his breaking point with his, uh, he had something very similar to Alzheimer's. And to see my mom's look on her face of the, the, the rock of her life, weaken to reach his breaking point. Jesus allows his men to see him with nothing left. Why? Because, listen to this gang, it's at the breaking point that one's fundamental allegiances, that our most basic convictions are revealed. Here, Jesus' disciples will learn something they could not learn from all the jaw-dropping wonders that Jesus had performed. They will see the Son trust in a Father even when the Father is about to turn his back on him. Pushed beyond the breaking point, what does Jesus do? The answer is found in the very words that Jesus uses. He says to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. These words would have sounded familiar to his disciples. You know why? Because they came from Psalm 42. See, beyond the breaking point, in the presence of his disciples, what does Jesus do? He turns to the sacred songs of his people. Songs that he and they would have known by heart. The greatest hits, if you will, of the Old Testament Psalter. In the final hours of Jesus' life, the Gospels indicate that he was meditating on Psalms 31, 34, 41, 42, and 43, 69, 110, and climactically, Psalm 22. I can remember in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria, when we were in Puerto Rico, and we were doing humanitarian relief work, and we had no, no power, no water, and it was, it was absolutely exhausting. And we were there, and we were, I was working... 16, 18-hour days, and uh, delivering food and water. And man, we just did beyond, what about the breaking point? We were just so exhausted. And I would wake up in the morning, and I would leave, and I, would, I was able to charge my phone with, with the battery, and, uh, and I would, I would I'd take my, my ear, uh, put my earpieces and earbuds in, and I would walk the streets that were completely silent, and I would be listening to, um, to the, a playlist of worship songs. And those worship songs sustained me, gave me life. I want to take just a few minutes, just a few minutes, to consider the opening verses of this psalm, Psalm 22. See, in Psalm 22, Jesus found another leader who had been pushed beyond the breaking point. He found King David. Listen to this. He found him as one who had no answers. Beyond the breaking point with no answers, no allies and no energy left. And he found David calling out to an infinitely resourceful, ever-reliable God. Let's talk about this. So he finds Jesus, finds, finds David, God's anointed king without answers. Look in verse one, verses 1 and 2. We read this famous line that Jesus cries out from the cross, My God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me so far from the cries of my anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. David is without answers. 
Beyond the breaking point, he doesn't understand. He's asking why. And he doesn't have answers in two ways. He has no answers, no explanations, no rationale for his why questions. His world makes no sense. But he also has no answers in another way. He calls out to God and what? Just silence. A deafening silence. He gets no answer, no response. So no rationale, no response to the one whom he calls my God. He, beyond the breaking point, David cannot reconcile God's devotion to him. My God, my God, the God who has made me promises, the God who swore he would save me. He cannot reconcile God's devotion to him with God's distance from him. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far away? Why are you so far from saving me? He asks God, if you're so devoted, why are you so distant? See, David had been faithful, not flawless, but he had been faithful. So why is he being forsaken? Beyond the breaking point, not only does David, now listen, not only does David have no answers, but he has no allies. He is all alone. Look at verses 6 and 7. He says, I am a worm and not a man. I'm a nothing. You, just, you, know, you walk by, you don't even notice a worm. You just step on a worm. Accident. It's just no, no value, no worth, just invisible. I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. Who are the people here? God's people. This isn't just you know, the outsiders, just random people. These are the people who are supposed to be on your side. And they're, 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 he's despised by them. All, verse 7, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. Right? We do that even today. Sort of, you're usually in jest, but what's the, when we text someone, we say SMH. Right? Shaking my head. What's it like when someone just looks at you and they just... You are a problem person. This world would be a better place if you weren't here. David has no answers. He's got no allies. In fact, in verse 11, David again protests, protests God's distance. And he says, Do not be far from me, for trouble is near. And what? There is no one to help. David not only has no answers, he has no allies, no advocates, only adversaries. Adversaries both inside and outside the people of God. So beyond the breaking point, David not only has no answers or no allies, he's got no energy left. Look in verses 14 and 15. He says, I am poured out like water. He's, he's on empty. He's got nothing left. All my bones are out of joint. Everything's out of place. He's, his health, when you, are, when you are beyond the breaking point, when you are under stress, your health, it just takes a toll on your body. But I think we were talking, talking about this last week in Sunday school. I mentioned a book written by a, 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 a leader, a re leading researcher in trauma and abuse. And the, the title of the book is The Body Keeps the Score. In that time of stress, no answers, no allies, bo David's body is taking a toll. 
and his is nothing left. He is on empty. My heart has turned to wax. He continues in verse 14. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. What's a potsherd? It's a, it's a broken piece of, of, of clay pot. Like you have a, a clay pot and it breaks. And there's this little shard. It's a potsherd. Okay? And, and David says, do you see this potsherd? This is me right now. I'm dried up. And what do you do with a potsherd? What can you do with it? Nothing. It's useless. He says, I feel so useless right now. I feel like no one wants me around. He says, my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. At the end of verse 15, he looks at God and says, you lay me in the dust of death. David has no energy left. He's spent. He's got nothing. Nothing more to give. And so Jesus, overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, beyond the breaking point, turns to the songs of his people, to the Psalms, to Psalm 72, to find what God's anointed king, with no answers, with no allies, with nothing left, doing what? What's he doing? What is David up to in that place? He's calling out to a God who is infinitely resourceful and ever reliable. Look at verse 3. Though David is without answers, my, my God, I cry out to you and you do not answer. He nevertheless admits to God, look at verse 3, yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. What does that mean? For God to be holy, it means that there's, there's no one like Him. He's in a category all by Himself, utterly different, utterly superior, transcendent, ever so sly ever so shrewd, always having an ace up his sleeve. One, listen to this, one whom we will always, always underestimate. Listen, there are certain things that David knows you just don't do. You don't tug on Superman's cape, right? You don't spit in the wind. You don't pull off the, uh, pull off the mask of the Lone Ranger, and you don't underestimate Israel's God. Yet you are the Holy One. He is holy, incomparably ingenious. He is infinitely resourceful. David can't see a way out. I don't know where this is going. It looks, all I know is it looks bad. But it doesn't matter what I see. There's so much more going on than what I can see. And my God is holy. He is infinitely resourceful. Now listen to this. This is key. Because God is holy, because he is infinitely resourceful, because he's the Holy One, David, beyond the breaking point, did not demand answers of God before he obeyed. And neither did Jesus. And what about you or me? Just recently, a pastor friend of mine said a member of his congregation came up to him and he admitted, he said, listen, pastor, I want to tell you, most of my Christian life, I've only obeyed when it made sense to me. Can you relate to that? Right? That's a dumb law. That's a dumb, why would you do that for? And he gave an example. He said, for example, I've never tithed. I've never given a cent my whole life. So why would I do that? I mean, come on. I don't make that much money. There are other people who can give. It just makes no sense. I got bills to pay. I just, I just can't. I just, I'm not, it doesn't make sense for me to tithe. 
He said, two years ago, I started tithing. I'm going to tell you really why, but I decided to start to. And he said, you know what? It's been one of the best things that's ever happened to me. He said, I needed that in my life so badly. I had no idea how much money gripped my life. Those are dumb laws. Beyond the breaking point, Jesus, understand this, in his humanity, he didn't have answers. It's incredible. And he did because of God's holiness, because he knew God was infinite resourceful. He said, I am not going to demand answers before I obey. And because God was ever resourceful, because he was that, this, this God who was ever resourceful was at David's side, beyond the breaking point, David and Jesus did not need allies or energy. They had God at their side. And so even when they were alone and exhausted, they obeyed. Now, I know, I know that some of you tonight, you're exhausted. You're just exhausted. You know, that's so much, one of the things that ministers, you look out on a Sunday morning, you see people, and you're here with a smile, and you look, you look, you know, you look good, you look normal. And I know your stories, and I know the pain, the sorrow, the heartache, the loneliness, the, the questions in your life. This makes no sense. I have no answers. Why is this happening like this? I have no advocates. No one is on my side. I am all alone. I'm always defending myself. And I'm just tired. I'm just so tired. I don't want to go another day. That's where Jesus is. In the Garden of Gethsemane on Good Friday. And in that state, he calls out to a God who he says is holy, infinitely resourceful. Not only is he infinite resourceful, he is ever reliable. Look at verses 4 and 5. In, your, in you, David says, in you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and you were uh, cried out to you. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. They were not put to shame. Three times he speaks of trust. David recalls God's track record with his people. Abraham and Sarah, hopelessly aged and infertile. Joseph, hopelessly and unjustly imprisoned. Israel, hopelessly enslaved in Egypt, encircled to the Red Sea, outnumbered in Canaan. They had all cried out to God and they were saved. It's incredible. You look at the Old Testament story of God and it's so, it's just it should never have worked. It's so hopeless. It's so pathetic. This is never going to go anywhere, and yet here we are today. It's incredible the impact of the God of Israel in world history. There's nothing like it. So David recalls God's track record. They all cried out to God, and they were saved. They trusted, and they were not put to shame. They said, I can't imagine a way forward. I can't see how we can get out of this. Abraham, Sarah, how are we going to have a kid? Joseph, how am I going to get out of prison? Israel and Egypt, how are we ever going to be delivered from, out of the hand of Pharaoh? That's ridiculous. How are we ever going to overtake these Canaanites? They were regularly overwhelmed, outgunned, outnumbered. There was no way they could see forward. 
And they would say, I am hopeless, but he is holy, incomparably resourceful, infinitely reliable. There in the darkness of the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus knew that God was resourceful, reliable. He prayed, Abba, Father, all things are what? Possible for you. And so God was infinitely resourceful. But was he reliable? He says, take this cup from me. Right here, cup refers to one's lot, to one's destiny. Whereas Abraham and Sarah's cup had been in infertility. Joseph's lot was imprisonment. Israel's was enslavement. Jesus' cup was abandonment by God and men. And yet he believed his father was reliable. Yet not my will, but your will be done. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Listen, brothers and sisters. Beyond the breaking point, Jesus, in his humanity, had to trust. He was not in control. In fact, he had no control over all that was happening. If you feel powerless in your life, Jesus felt more powerless. He had to trust, and yet he wanted to trust. Why? Because his God, Israel's God, was trustworthy, ever resourceful, ever reliable. On the cross, Jesus was utterly alone in the universe. The only one in human history to be completely faithful was completely forsaken by God and man. And when he was forsaken, he cried out a psalm. A psalm that said, when beyond the breaking point, with no answers, no allies, with no energy left, one could cling to Israel's God, a God who is infinitely resourceful and ever reliable. Now think about it, just let me close with this. Utterly alone in the cosmos, having been completely faithful, he was utterly, completely forsaken. It was so unfair. It was so, and that unfairness, that unfairness has a name. What's it called? It's called grace. It's called grace. It's so beautiful, and it makes no sense whatsoever. Being perfectly faithful, he could be utterly forsaken for the sake of another. For all who are hopeless failures and frauds, chronically unfaithful. Why would he do that? Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But gang, my suspicion is that it has to do with love. He did it because he loves you. That's what I want you to hear tonight. He loves you and all your sorrow and all your doubt and all your anger. He loves you. He went to Calvary for you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, how beautiful it is that we can come to you on this night, this darkest of nights, knowing that you fought the fight, that you were faithful to the very end, that you were forsaken, Jesus, in the name of love. And was that fight worth fighting? Did Jesus make the right decision? Did he sing the right 
song. Father, it all depends on what you did three days later. Father, help us over the next three days to enter into the darkness, the uncertainty of Jesus' crucifixion and burial. Father, that is so often where we live. We live in that tomb, waiting for the, the waiting to hear something, waiting for that rock to be ro- rolled away. Father, there are some here tonight who are there in that tomb, that place of death, that place of despair, and they don't know if there's going to be a resurrection. Father, would you be present with them? Father, there are some here tonight who are like those like that, 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 that rebel, like that um, insurrectionist on the cross with Jesus who said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Father, today, may each and every one of us hear the words from Jesus who said, today, you will be with me in paradise. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty and merciful name. Amen.